This is Swampside Chats. Here come the hits, the a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, and the latest installment of our series, The Joy of Sects, we sit down with Sophia from Redneck Revolt to talk about Redneck Revolt. So, um, exactly, well, not exactly a year ago, perhaps, but around a year ago was uh, when the infamous Unite the Right protests happened in Charlottesville. I think we're all familiar with those events. So today, I guess they tried to have a uh, Unite the Right 2.0, but this time in Washington, D.C., and uh, it turned out that only uh, 24 people on the right wing showed up and hundreds of leftists showed up to counter-protest what was only 24 Nazis, which is kind of hilarious, actually. Damn. Can I get a womp-womp? This might not be a rabbit hole worth opening up um, on this episode, but does this, because a lot of us were kind of pessimistic about, like, left-wing Antifa engagement with, you know, these kind of things. It seems to have worked pretty clearly in this instance. So, yeah, that would that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, was how much has... You know, Antifa played a role in the complete diminishment of the alt-right over the uh, past year. Because it seems like basically the alt-right is collapsing. If you look at their own media, they're all divided and attacking each other, fracturing. And, you you know, they, they can't even do public events basically anymore. I think this leads pretty well into our topic for tonight. And our guest tonight is Sophie from Redneck Revolt. Hi, uh, my name's Sophia. I uh, helped to found the or refound the Redneck Revolt Network in 2016. Cool. So, um, how would you connect uh, Redneck Revolt to the anti-fascist movement in general? Would you say that it's you know a wing of the anti-fascist movement, or maybe it's its own thing entirely? What would you say is the relationship between the two? Well, I guess in order to answer that question, we have to make sure we are talking about the same thing in regards to Antifa. And the way I use Antifa is just what it literally means, just anti-fascism. Now, that's obviously different from the popular media usage of the term, which usually associated specifically with Black Bloc uh, protesters. So as far as like, you know, is René Graval anti-fascist? Absolutely. Is it Antifa? Using the definition I gave of just simply being anti-fascist absolutely but we don't typically we don't use those same black bloc tactics and in my opinion part of the reason why we don't use those tactics is i think those tactics are kind of overused and sort of fetishized a lot one of the things that renegade revolt doesn't want to do is be like this underground or clandestine kind of organization like the Um, weather underground (laughs) yeah exactly no that's not our thing like we want to build like an actual working class movement and be in our community. And so we typically, unless there's a very good reason, we typically don't mask up at actions. You know, people in our communities know who we are. And because of that, you know, they trust us and rely on us for help. So like, what would be an example of that? Um, I mean, one of the most common examples is uh, 
I don't know, common actually, it's, but one of the most talked about examples is doing security for other groups or doing security at actions that typically we try to work closely and listen to the people who are asking for help. And in a lot of instances, as particularly in my branch, like the things we do for security, they ask us not to be public about it. So they don't, basically they don't want, you know, sometimes like we're asked to do security for more like liberal groups, you know? And because of that, like they ask us not to carry firearms or whatever. And we also are very like more low key about those instances. But there's other things we do as well that I think can still be considered broadly like anti-fascist work, but maybe not as direct, which is like, you know, mutual aid, like growing, uh, you know, vegetable gardens through the community and, um, you know, being a part of needle exchange programs and things like that. And I guess I kind of consider that like a form of anti-fascist movement uh, or uh, action because, you know, the more alienated and deprived a population is, you know, people might turn to fascism for an answer to that. And when they have an alternative that's coming from the left and it's providing direct support, the appeal of fascism loses its value. And it sounds like that in there, in this like uh, an- broader kind of anti-fascism that you're talking about, and the reason that you were differentiating between anti-fascism and Antifa as it's known, like uh, is, I don't know, at least on this show, we've definitely had like a, a kind of withering critique of, of some of the more hyper uh, militant responses to fascism, which again, again, we're, you know, not trying to mock people that are, are trying to uh, uh, stop fascism, but sort of just a broader conversation about tactics and, you know, whether a bunch of, you know, racist losers showing up is, is worth a mobilization. Now it's, it sounds like redneck revolt because it's abstaining from like anarchist style, like direct action basically in those circumstances and provides more of a supporting role. And because if you're an armed group, violence is not just like a, a cathartic toy you know like <laughs> right yeah there's a difference yeah when you're when you're strapped like throwing rocks can escalate somewhere uh very bad very quickly yeah there's like a big yeah. difference in terms of how you have to act i'm sure because i've i've had like i don't know i've had um a lot of moral conflict about myself about what to do if there are fascist groups mobilizing because on the one hand i do think some of the left-wing responses some of the left-wing responses are counterproductive. On the other hand, there's clearly like a role for people that are trying to get people out of out of that kind of uh, uh, world, or at least if you can't do that, then you know defend uh, your community from them if if you have to. There's clearly something morally appealing about that, and morally doesn't mean strategic or tactical. Well, yeah. I was going to say that you know the best defense against fascism is a powerful working class movement that's you know an actual. It has actual institutions like mutual aid institutions, as Sophia was talking about, and as well as armed workers. And so I think the, uh, you know, trying to take gun ownership back from the right is actually a very important thing to do. Because I think uh, any socialist organization should fight for, you know, the arming of the people and the creation of people's militias or replace the police. And I think trying to kind of bring that idea back into the left dialogue has a lot of value. And also, that's a lot of value in the anti-fascist movement, I think, because 
you know, I think a lot of, you know, anti-fascism is very adventurous and there needs to be people who actually do take seriously the task of defending the left from fascists, which is really the biggest threat that fascists, you know, have is that they can disrupt our meetings, disrupt our events. You know, I think there were protests against ICE that were broken up by fascists not long ago. And so, yeah, I think it's a more productive form of Antifa than we see in a lot of cases, in my opinion. Well, and ironically enough, like, actually, if the left does take back, you know, gun culture and stuff like that, that would actually go much further towards getting gun control than anything liberals could ever possibly do. (laughs) (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Because remember, like Ronald Reagan was very strongly pro gun control when the Black Panthers were marching around the Capitol with, uh, you know, with guns. And the other thing, it's funny because when the left actually does try to take take back, you know, um, gun culture or whatever. I remember when they uh, when Redneck Revolt first did like that. I think it was in Arizona where they basically like stood stood in a, on a line basically and open carried for a bit under a banner. Was that Arizona? Yeah, that was Arizona. Yeah, I remember. I remember when they did that. There were all like these conspiracy things floating around, claiming that the guns they were holding were like toys or were a- or airsoft rifles and stuff like yeah. that. And it's like it's interesting how like right wingers seem to think like if leftists like pick up a gun, like it'll just be like the end of Raiders of a Lost Ark or like. <laughs> Or like their dicks will fly off and explode or something. You know what I mean? Like, like it, there's nothing that like using a gun like isn't actually that hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a pretty simple instrument. I mean, I mean, yes and no. Like I think there's a difference between using a gun and using a gun well. You know what I mean? Well, and also to kind of like touch on a few of the points, like when it comes to how we think of like anti-fascist anti-fascism and how that what that looks like. It's it, it's very defensive in that, like, you know, I think it was Donald who said, when you're carrying a gun, like, you don't want to be throwing rocks. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to be, like, talking shit because somebody could get killed, you know, and we take that very seriously. So in a lot of branches, especially the branches that are more uh, doing the community defense side of things, uh, they're taught and trained in... Um, de-escalation as well in uh, as how to use firearms and how to use weapons because um when the violence is could could potentially be fatal you actually don't want to use it you know what i mean it's like a last resort sort of thing but yeah when it comes to like the issues with gun culture like that was part of the conversation we had going into this was the right has so much ownership and almost a monopoly on gun culture like you go into any gun show and there's a bunch of like wacky right-wing propaganda and stuff and i think that's a huge problem and i also think that hurts the left because you know marginalized communities are going to drift are going to you know most likely become left if they get politicized and when you know the right owns or has a monopoly on gun culture those spaces become alienating, right? Yeah, like a gun show here in Florida, very often you just have street Nazis tabling and they kind of don't even try to hide the fact they're Nazis at all and it's just really creepy. I mean, I think that kind of makes sense given like gun ownership is kind of 
essentially what it is in the United States is a very expensive hobby for a lot of people. It's like going like these guns are like really expensive. The bolt ammo is expensive. And like a lot of the people who are really big into it are the kind of like sort of Republican voter that like lives in a McMansion and has two SUVs and like calls himself redneck because, well, it's, you know, they're in the South. I think when it comes to the affordability of firearms and ammunition and all that stuff, I think having a group that you can pull your money together with is really useful. Um, a lot of times we, we always try to sell our firearms to each other rather than, you know, just posting it on like, you know, a, a gun broker web, uh, website. The main reason is like most likely, you know, you're selling a firearm to the enemy, whereas, you know, uh, you're selling it to somebody, you know, and you can trust. But the other benefit of, you know, having a group and, you know, selling the firearms to each other is you get them at a discount. And when it comes to ammunition, like for target practice, we often will pull resources and you know, help out those who are looking for work, you know, make sure they can still practice and things like that. So I think having a group that we basically just pull our resources together and make sure that the poorest of us can still get practice. I mean, yeah, I think uh, leftist gun clubs basically could be a really important part of just just not just gun clubs, but even things, you know, like bowling leagues or basketball leagues or you know, it, like alternative culture stuff, yeah, alternative culture stuff, like hiking clubs and you know, things like that. Right. And those she, kind of things create a sense of solidarity between people. And that what is what allows for a kind of a, a sort of political class consciousness to develop is when people kind of do feel like that there is this own class that has its own culture and you can become part of it. And well, I thought I actually thought it would have been yeah. I mean, the problem is like the left is so attached to kind of like hippie stuff to a certain extent, where it's like you know uh, we don't believe in violence, man, and shit well, like that's, that. That's why gun clubs are good because you know the hippies aren't going to come. Well, <laughs> that's one of the biggest problems of leftists is that there's too many hippies. So, well, let's really be um, specific when we're talking. Like, is it the left that really hates guns or? Is it just that the left wing of our politics in this society is so like centrist and liberal, you know, that yeah, we don't point. we don't get back around to the other side of the horseshoe. And I know people hate horseshoe theory, but you know well, I think that just like, even the American left has internalized aspects of liberalism, even if it doesn't realize it. Yeah, you know. I agree that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially like the anarcho pacifist kind of uh yeah, anarcho liberal. Yeah, I think yeah, I think this hits at something that's culturally important and just important in terms of like I don't know broader concepts in political theory. So on the one hand, we have the delicious effect of weeding out the libs. Um that's great. Like and and associating this like because gun culture is associated with working class culture in the United States. I mean, it actually like is like, whereas most of the people I know that are like, I don't want to say like terrified of guns, just people that hate guns, not just are terrified. You could be scared of guns and for good reasons, you know, but like 
people that like hate guns just don't see why anyone would need a gun ever, you know? Like um those people are mostly pretty well off. Like I, I don't oh, meet yeah. I don't meet people like that that are come from like you know, you're like it's just it's right. it, it's a clear class divide and they've either they've either never lived somewhere where they were like dangerous like right. wild predators or they've they are the type of people for whom the police are their friend or and, even if they have like negative thoughts about no, the police no, no, no. like the you police would... the, you just hit the nail on the head the th- second thing i want to bring up here is this idea of alienating self defense right like there's this old hegelian trope where okay you alienate your power to do something But then this alienated power can come back to you much stronger than you could ever do it. And so, right, we do have a police force with overwhelming force, right? But many of us do not trust them to protect us. And we end up in a situation where not only do we not trust the overwhelming force of the state that is supposed to be our alienated power to defend ourselves, but then we're completely de-skilled and we don't know how to defend ourselves. We don't have confidence that we could, you know, take our own lives into our hands, like, and, and, and protect ourselves. Like that's, um, there are people who are so infantilized. They literally call the cops on people selling water and lemonade. I hear you have a problem with these gentlemen having a barbecue here at the lake. What's going on? Oh, now she don't want to talk. (laughs) She doesn't want to talk now. (laughs) It's illegal to have a charcoal grill in the park here. No, it's not actually. I just yeah, looked at the it map. Is. It says this is a designated barbecue area. No, it, if you, it, not for a charcoal grill. No charcoal grills are allowed. Do you want to see it? Yeah, you gotta try and give it to You must not have looked up. What kind of grill are you not allowed, and why are you so bent out of shape over them being? This woman don't want to let a little girl sell some water. She calling police on an eight-year-old little girl. You can hide all you want. The whole world gonna see you, boo. Yeah, and um, illegally selling water without a permit. Yeah. On my property. It's not your property. If you go anywhere, you'll be committing a crime as well. You know that, right? Okay. I'm do my work. No, I'm no, I refuse to. Oh my god. You're leaving. It's no. against the law. She's trying to leave. Yeah, the license plate number. The license plate. In, in, in Brooklyn. Yes. So, we have another story to tell you about a white woman who called police because a black man was wearing socks in a swimming pool. I have every right to call the police. You cannot sleep in that room. I have absolute right to document what's going on. I'm not taking your picture. This is this is Facebook Live. Here's what we're gonna do. That's fine. I need to go back to this whole floor to finish writing my paper. What's uh? You got your ID on you? Yeah, I do. All right, can we see that? Why? A CVS manager coming under fire, captured on cell phone video calling 911 on a black customer trying to use a coupon. You can tell them her name is Camilla Hudson. I have ID and will share it. The manager visibly shaking while making the call. African American. Black. No, I'm not African American. I'm black. Black isn't a bad word. Camilla Hudson tells ABC News that she started recording shortly after she handed the manufacturer coupon to another CVS manager. He goes, well, I can't accept this. So I said, okay, why can't you accept it? Because it looks fraudulent. She says they never even scanned her coupon to see if it was real. We got another police officer after I showed her my key to her, walked up here and tried to kick me out of my own goddamn pool. 
I pay $1,600 in rent. I don't know her, and she's asking where I live. The question that you asked me was, well, do I live here? I said yes. Then you asked me where my address was. I showed you my key. What more of a conversation needs to be held? Am I, like seriously, what more of a conversation do I need to have? I had a whole bunch of I'm saying. You did answer her question. I did answer her question. I did. I told her. Why do I need to give this lady who I don't know my address? Sweatshirt and, and jeans, and I have brown hair about shoulder length. And I have people harassing me. My race doesn't matter. She is and white! My age. She is white! Your race does matter! They're asking for it. And you're acting like a victim all of a sudden. You've been trying to act all tough earlier. You've been harassing us. It doesn't matter. I want the police to come, and I've been waiting for two hours for them. Like children. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. it's very it's true. We, and so that that that's sometimes called domestication, sort of like a masculinist way to talk about it, but also like a I don't know an anti-civil way to talk about it. Like uh, you know humans, whatever you could say about humans, we used to be able to defend ourselves. Now, personally, I'm too damn squishy to do it. And that's yeah. a problem. Like, like when, when you see Antifa have to rely on the police to protect it from fascists sometimes, you know, that's really pathetic. Yeah. Yeah, that's always been my problem with Antifa is that they don't actually learn how to fight. And it's just, it kind of becomes, a, a, you just go to symbolically get beaten up by fascists almost. And yeah. it becomes it's it's not actually about winning. So I think yeah, that's one of the biggest problems of Antifa, in my opinion, is not that they're using violence against fascists. It's just that they're not really good at it, and so well, it, it almost becomes like a kind of ritual thing. I mean, hopefully one day I would hope that like care like having guns and like community policing wouldn't like need guns or even really like to have designated police in general or whatever sort of police figures in the community but like yeah you definitely do not want to have to trust the cops because like like I don't even know if they really do like de-escalation like tactics anymore from what I've read like they just go and shoot first they're taught to shoot first because apparently enough people have guns to the point where they they're paranoid or whatever like some bullshit that like liberals feed and like try to use to like blame the victims of like police violence for that even though like cops are like basically known to be like have like really horrific aggressive tendencies to the point when there's like studies done about like domestic abuse and like cop and like uh police uh, in law enforcement families it's like relatively high like 40 percent well and i think part of it too is like the cops know they can get away with it but i think i kind of want to circle around and like point out how all these different things are kind of connected like part of the reason why i think it's important for the left to take over you know take over gun culture um is because of you know the things that we were talking about as far as like not a, not knowing how to defend ourselves and, like, be, like, that kind of masculine uh, association with guns that can really be alienating the people who aren't masculine at all. Um, you know, and women are generally socialized, you know, women and feminine people are generally socialized to be timid and not 
assertive enough to use firearms. And, um, you know, we try to dispel all that and make sure that everybody gets proper training, whether they're in Renegrable or not. If people ask us to help them with, with how to use a firearm, we help them. It doesn't matter. You know, we don't treat, we do our best not to treat anyone differently because of their gender. And it also ties into how marginalized groups can't rely on the police for protection because the police as an agent of, you know, the bourgeois state, they're there to uphold these systems of power. They're there to enforce white supremacy and they're there to go in and shoot, you know, neurodivergent people and ask questions second. And if we allow that skill to be alienated from the working class, we have nothing. You know what I mean? And I'm not here to suggest that we need to be like fighting cops or anything ridiculous, but if we can't rely on them to protect us, who's going to protect us when the fascists are threatening us? Because they definitely know how to use guns and that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. And honestly, if I, I think if fascists are dangerous to anyone, it's probably the organized left. Like it's, it's probably not the marginalized communities that a lot of anti-fascists are like saying that that are going to be the primary targets. Like those people are usually worried about the state or something, you know, like, and I, I don't, not to diminish, just saying that like, yeah, we have to be able to defend ourselves when the fascists come, not call the cops. Well, yeah, exactly. The, the, the first people the fascists have always gone for has been the organized left. And then they, you know, get power and embark on a genocidal adventure. But yeah, it's usually the actual left that fascists go after first. I think that the problem is that a lot of leftists hype up the idea that there's just an impending fascism. And I do understand the sense of this, this impending huge gigantic pogrom that's just going to happen because of all of these tensions building up. But at the same time, I think that this fear can kind of lead to an unhealthy just obsession with a looming fascism. And so it, it leads to a lot of, what's the word? Uh, it just, it leads to a lot of adventuristic politics. Like, I guess you have groups like, you know, like Red Guards Austin. Oh, don't get me started on those guys. <laughs> and, you know, this like this idea that we just need to like take up arms now and like become the resistance against the, the impending fascist government. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, where the government is and like, you know, whether, you know, it's fascist or not, or what's the strength of the fascist movement in the USA? I mean, I agree that like we shouldn't, you know, get into like doomsday chicken little kind of running around, um, dropping our guns and making the cops clear them for us like the Red Guards are. I think like the defense extends more than like, the community defense project is more than just a project of defense against organized fascists. And I think, you know, Lexi was right. And, every, you know, everyone's right. Like the, as far as organized fascists is concerned, they will always go for the left first because those are the main people who are organized and going to resist them. And they're less likely to just randomly attack marginalized groups. But with that said, that I think that specifically only applies to organized fascists. When we're talking about bigots off the rocker, those are the people who are most likely, who are more likely to attack them, a marginalized person than like an organized fascist. I don't know if fascism is a pending United States. You know, I think 
this is the closest it's been in a long time, but I don't think it's a for sure thing. But I also, I guess I don't want to dispel this impression that like Redneck Revolt only exists as like an Antifa kind of group, you know? It doesn't. And I think a lot of like, a lot of the mutual aid projects that we put our time and effort into is, and the counter recruitment, I think, while it does, like, while the counter recruitment does kind of provide like a defense against fascist recruitment, I think it does an even broader service in that, like, it breaks down these, you know, elements of the left that, uh, you know, most people just automatically associate with, like, Stalin's mustache, you know? Oh, yeah. Breaks it down to, like, digestible chunks uh, that just kind of get to the core of what they're talking about without getting into these, you know, left-wing buzzwords that will... uh, push away you know most people because they've lived their whole lives being afraid of you know stalinism coming to america they even react that way sometimes to you know basic anarchist principles and i think in order to build like a mass movement we have to be able to like circumvent or break down these misconceptions that uh happen in most people's minds you know what i mean um, yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you about like counter recruitment. So, like, what kind of, like, what does that consist of? Like, who are the people you kind of target for counter recruitment, and how does that kind of work? Counter recruitment is probably even more so than the guns. It's probably like the most controversial aspect of Redneck Revolt. So the first thing I want to say is, you know, regardless, whatever the listeners' views about Redneck Revolt are, critical or not. Just know that it's not all white dudes with beards and redneck revolt. Um, that misconception bothers a lot of, you know, the black and brown members and, you know, the trans and women members of redneck revolt. And it actually really irritates me. Um, but with that said, the idea of counter recruitment is essentially to go to places that the left has kind of abandoned to the right wing and a counter narrative or a voice of, you know, left wing ideas to these groups. And these groups are, you know, these spaces are predominantly white spaces, which obviously makes sense because if it's a right wing space, you know, it's less likely to be populated by marginalized communities. It's obviously not 100% white, but it is predominantly white. And so because of that, there's this misconception that the reason why Rednick Revolt does counter recruitment is that it's just uh, obsessed with white people or white culture trying to rehabilitate white people or, or anything like that. And I don't necessarily see it that way. What The way I see it is if we are building a broad mass movement of working class people, that movement is by nature going to have some people in it who white. So there is an article I read recently that kind of gets into this about, uh, well, now I've also read books about this too, about like the abolition of whiteness. And, um, you know, this one article I read kind of seemed to be very critical of Rene Revolt because, you know, we're not doing enough to dismantle whiteness and white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. In my opinion, I think white supremacy and capitalism go hand in hand. And I think we're not ever going to be able to fully dismantle white supremacy until we could dismantle capitalism. 
Well, so my original, my original question: What kind of what kind of groups do you counter recruit? Like, what kind of people do you? And by the way, like, I'm actually sympathetic to this because I think uh, you should actually debate with far right wing people. And I think a lot of you know, like rank and file on the ground people who have kooky ideas about things, you probably actually could win them to communist politics if you actually like. Were I mean, honestly, I'd have I have more trouble talking to liberals or liberals and like Democrats than I would with people like on the far right in terms of. Not far right, but you know, sort of like not I'm like, not like committed ideologues, but people who are just kind of generally right wing, but they haven't yeah. thought about it very much. Yeah. But so Sorry, I I, the InfoWars crowd, basically, right. you know. InfoWars crowd, shit like that. So like what kind of people you crowd are you counter recruit? You, you go to gun shows, like, yeah, gun any, like shows, uh, you know, sometimes like country music festivals, radios, um, trying to think what else. NASCAR races, all these kind of stuff. But the main one is, I would say, uh, gun shows. Give me like success stories of like counter counter program or deprogramming, like you know, some like you know, <laughs> like nutcase or stuff like that happen. Yeah, is- yeah that that's happened. Um, I would say actually, one of the biggest success stories I think is probably one of the first success stories. So a lot of people don't know this, but like. What we now call Redneck Revolt started off as the John Brown Gun Club back in 2009, if I remember correctly. And what was happening in, and this was in Kansas, and what was happening back then in Kansas was that there was this uh, Minutemen uh, person who uh, got on some local position of power in the local government. And because of that, Minutemen were flocking to Kansas to support this person. And they decided to hold their first annual conference in that area. And around the time that all this was happening, uh, John Brown Gun Club started. And one of the things that they were doing um, was going to gun shows and talking to people there just through repeated comments. Because the thing with like counter recruitment, it's very rare that you will get somebody to fully agree and flip. Most of what you're trying to do is just get them to not join the fascists, but Sometimes you'll have like, you know, much more success than you think. And so through repeated conversations, one of the Minutemen decided to flip and actually help John Brown Gun Club and gave them all bunches of uh, all kinds of insider information about like where their annual Minutemen convention was going to be held and all sorts of things that made it really possible for them to organize against that. And then John Brown Gun Club also helped uh, also reached out to different community organizations to build a coalition to oppose the Minutemen. And they really haven't been around much. Um, I don't think it was solely John Brown Gun Club, but they haven't had an annual conference since then. And um, they're not really a militia group you hear much about anymore. Um, I could be wrong, but I haven't heard much from them in a while. So. Yeah, the the Minutemen is it's an anti-immigration militia group, correct? Yeah, that that's correct. It's mostly focused around kind of just a broad anti-immigration platform. I think that that's the last. Yeah, you're right. That I haven't really heard much about them lately. I think. I mean, there's also been other instances where there's some, sometimes we get like people who wouldn't feel comfortable in other left-wing spaces even if they no longer uh, even if they no longer are like right-wing in any sense like people who have already been reformed still don't feel comfortable organizing with other left-wing people 
and Runic Revolt provides a place for them where they can, you know, join in. And obviously, like, you know, we do vet people um, and make sure that, like, they're actually safe, you know. But um, I think it's important to have those perspectives in the left because nobody understands our enemy better than people who used to be with our enemy. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the counter-recruitment is, you know, a very important thing. And I've thought about, you know, how leftists should do this kind of stuff before Redneck Revolt really existed, I think. And a lot of people, I think, were probably talking about, you know, the left really does need to start trying to counter-recruit from these right-wing militias and try to, you know, recuperate gun culture and kind of take... Because there's a sense where the failure of the left to have a resonance with the masses has led to the kind of culture of opposition to the establishment becoming right wing. And so there's just a deep failure of the left in that regard because of the fact that the, you know, the general anti-establishment militia, you know, that's, that does exist is right wing rather than left wing. So I think that there is a, it's almost like a culture war sort of, but not, oh, about, yeah. but not use a negative not in a negative way, though, because I do think culture wars can be important. And but this is definitely a culture war issue, though. That's 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 what is so pernicious about the way that uh, the contemporary gun debate goes. It's you know the right wing plays the culture war, so you kind of have no choice but to play in response. Well, you, good responses to culture war issues short circuit the the regular two sides. So so often when people start denouncing a communist tyranny they'll talk about how stalin and mao took the guns away you know that's a fav- favorite alex jones line um you know i bet you that guy has never read marx's defense of being armed and you know don't let the state take that shit from you like i mean i think that's something that dude could probably chow down on well state and revolution where he basically says uh arm the citizenry and abolish the police and army and replace it with the armed citizenry. You know, that that was part of the classic Marxist program back in the day. I mean, I'm sure he's read Lenin, but he, he probably just thinks Lenin is in bad faith. Yeah. It's hard to say but, that about Marx. That general he, he, idea. He just, he just pulls out the index and looks for, like, Jew gold to try and see if, like, Lenin ever mentions it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... I mean, something uh, Donald said earlier, um, talking about like the panic about the state of impending fascism. Like that's something I can understand, because like I went to like like I basically bought a gun for the first time after Trump was elected, and I start I went to like redneck revolt stuff like pretty early on, like in the Trump administration, because you know there is this sense of fascists are running wild. You know they're they're getting more and more bold. You know like the the most authoritarian state this country's ever seen is like has donald trump in charge of it you know like it it, it it's, it's you know i felt in that period like a much stronger need for like self-defense skills than before and i understand like redneck revolt kind of got a bump from that especially maybe more so than other groups well i mean the funny thing with that is the reformation of redneck revolt happened during like the very, very start beginning of it happened during Trump's campaign and the beginning of uh, the rise of the alt-right during that area um, or era rather. And, you know, a friend of mine 
had a Redneck Revolt blog back in 2009 that was kind of adjacent to John Front Gun Club. And it, they started it back up in, in 2016 as a Facebook page. And it was just, just supposed to be that, you know, um, just the way to get information out there and the people who normally wouldn't get it and try to get outside of that echo chamber. But as Donald Trump seemed more and more, it seemed more and more of a possibility that he would win. And we saw more and more right-wing violence, you know, of people started to think like, well, maybe, you know, people I knew started to think that maybe we need to restart this thing. And that's kind of the climate that actually led to the reformation of, of Redneck Revolt. And I think while I do think that like, you know, whether or not we'll see fascism is unknown at this time, I do think what we are seeing, which is alarming, is the boldness of fascists. I've never seen anything like that in my life. They've always been around, obviously, but, and as, and I think we're starting to see the decline of that, thankfully. Uh, you know, it's only a matter of time until the next crisis when, you know, maybe this will happen again or it'll be worse. You know what I mean? Well, the problem is you have these little fascist gangs like Adam Waffen Division or uh, what are they called? Uh, you Basically, you have these small, insignificant fascist groups. And because they're so small, you don't really have that much to lose if they just attack another leftist or something like that. In a way, so because the stakes are so low, it almost makes them more of a threat because, you know, they're not actually an official party that's trying to get public recognition. They're basically just a street gang. So they're more willing to actually use, you know, violence. Yeah, but we, 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 we should recognize this from leftist history that when you start, you know, channeling your politics into decentralized street gangs, it's a sign of weakness. Well, yeah, I'm saying their weakness... And the fact, and their weakness can in fact be a danger to the left because they're so weak, they resort to this kind of decentralized street gang form where they just kind of do individualistic acts of violence. It's important to remember too that I think some of this is also like a media question because a lot of this stuff existed, you know, for a long time, like in the '80s and stuff, but it just wasn't given any attention the way that it is now because you don't have. Yeah, the internet. You know what I mean? Like, I remember I was debating like the merits of like Antifa tactics with a friend of mine. We were talking about it at this pizza place, and the beauty of the pizza shop is like, oh yeah, Antifa. I used to do that. He's talking about how like just down the street, like he used to like, yeah, we we like on the weekends we'd go get and fight with Nazis at these bars. You know, right? <laughs> so, like, you don't, you don't, you then you know that was a common thing to do. You you just don't see that. And you didn't, you know, maybe one of those people would turn up like randomly on, on Donahue or and they'd be paraded as like circus freaks. Or there was that time that <laughs> Oprah went or there's that time that Oprah went to that city where they made black people illegal in Georgia until the Supreme Court overturned it. Like, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on, but it wasn't really it wasn't a part of the zeitgeist in the same way. Well, what, is, what would people say is the most popular and well-known fascist group today in the U.S.? I mean, group, Twitter, you know what I mean? Like, when I, I talk to... You, I, I talk about actual organization. Proud Boys. Proud Boys. I would say Proud Boys, yeah. I was thinking that Identity Europa, but maybe a Proud Boy. If Proud Boys is, if you can consider them fascist proper... Yeah, that, that, that's, my, that's my question there. Them. Like, Identity Europa is pretty clearly fascist. Proud yeah, they're Boys. definitely fascist. Proud Boys is like, it's like, uh, they're, they're on, the, it's, it's close. It's close so enough. They're like an alt-light like Identity, didn't like 
identity Europa have like leadership problems and that led to like a like a breakdown in like membership overall. Can I yeah, get I remember want. hearing about that? Want, yeah, want. but they're still they're still the larger group and they're still fairly professional. There was actually a guy from Left Book who ended up joining them. They kind of lost their mind after the Trump election. Yeah, I think and, I think I think they split over whether Michelangelo's statues are gay because they gave him a boner. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. So have you seen their propaganda though? Oh, like well, marble Rome. Well, I would think Identity Europa was probably like the most well-known fascist organized fascist group maybe like a year ago, and I don't know the details of you know Identity Europa's downfall, but I do think part of it has to do with like. Richard Spencer being shut down pretty consistently. Um, and I, for that, I do think like black block tactics have their time and place, but it gets overused um, and it can be quite alienating. And, you know, it, it is kind of a culture wars thing as you all were talking about, like, you know, if, if people only associate the left with like, you know, some kid with a black, you know, with a black mask uh, breaking down Starbucks windows, it's not that's not going to really appeal to like you know most working class people because and maybe that's ridiculous on their part or not but regardless well, honestly, we have to try to control the merit narrative you know this is what's crazy is that the the exact same problem happened in 1919 with the Spartacus League because the general public you know saw the Spartacus League whether fairly or not as basically just a bunch of thugs who were randomly attacking police and randomly attacking banks and stuff they basically just saw them as basically you know just you know a bunch of basically how people see the black block today and so that basically was one of the reasons why their attempt at an uprising failed because they didn't have enough public support there is and so there is a real problem where if you just have like black clad anarchists like you know being the face of the movement it doesn't really look good <laughs> There's a similar dynamic in Italy during the, uh, hot, I forget what it's called, hot autumn, hot summer, anyway, um, with the Red Brigades. This is something that pops up from time to time. Uh, the years of lead. Mm. They took out a what? prime minister, I think. Um, they took out Elder Moro, who was the leader of the Christian Democratic Party. And yeah, that was an interesting time period. And the, the Red Brigades actually had a lot of support. Yeah, that was the thing I was thinking. Wait a second, though. Like, there, people like the Red Brigades. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of people who actually liked the Red Brigades. Like, they had, they were more effective at actually making links with the working class than any other like guerrilla group. Basically, than uh, the Weathermen. There you go. I mean, didn't didn't yeah. think the Red Army faction have a lot of a relatively strong amount of support though? At one point, like I think like a third of like people in Germany said they would hide like a Red Army faction member in their house. Yeah, but it wasn't like oh, it, was, it was like that level of support, not actually politically supporting and sympathizing with them as a party, because you had the Italian Communist Party, which is really popular, and then you had all these opposition groups, and so people would side with like these different opposition groups against the Italian Communist Party, even if they weren't necessarily members. And so there were a lot of like union members who was like sided with the Red Brigades and had delegates who were Red Brigade connected, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating history. That is fascinating. 
Now, if, if we could, now if we could just get like trade union members in Redneck Revolt, I was actually thinking about that when there was that teacher strike in West Virginia, and that was around the same same time that Trump said like we should arm the teachers. I always thought it would have been great if like if like the teachers had like gone to like the picket line strapped and started like bringing guns to union negotiations or like well President Trump said it was okay, so yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean yeah, now let's arm the teachers. <laughs> I mean. Um, I mean, it sort of raises the question, like, okay, so Redneck Revolt isn't really a, a fascist organization, even though the anti-fascist organization, even though they do anti-fascist work. And you talked about, like, how, like, a lot of people, a lot of minorities generally want to be protected from the state. But right. how does one go about doing that necessarily is, like, something that like brings to mind like yeah you have the guns but what are you gonna do with those guns in this situation do you just like sort of patrol them like the black panthers did just sort of follow them around and like like whenever they're about to do something you get in the way wait do you mean like follow around the police yeah Yeah, you you probably can't do that anymore that is what the panthers did yeah yeah i don't think the thing after that now is like the closest thing you have to that now is like libertarians who like follow cops around and like film the police, man. But sorry. Yeah, like what what can you even really do is like something that would like have to be addressed in terms of protecting people from the state. Well, I think the number one thing we can do is not hoard these skills to ourselves, but any group that wants to learn them, we, you know, freely uh, help them and train them, whether or not they join Redneck Revolt or former branch is totally up to them. But um, besides training, uh, I think doing security for groups that ask for help is another big thing. Um, but I think this kind of gets into how, as part of like the practice of Redneck Revolt, like it's not about us going into neighborhoods where we're not wanted and patrolling cops or doing things that make us feel good, but actually being where we're wanted, you know what I mean? Um, And as far as like, you know, oppressed groups, like we, I think the best thing we can do is simply train them, honestly. Um, I do think the following the cops around is a tactic that is no longer viable. Part of the reason is I don't want, uh, I, I just don't want things to escalate between the parties. I think that would just lead to a situation like the Spartacus League that uh, Donald yeah. was talking about earlier. Um, you know, and again, like these have real world consequences. So we definitely don't want to get into adventurous, uh, you know, excursions either. Because um, when it, when guns are involved, it's, it turns deadly quickly. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Um, I mean... I mean, I think just having a leftist gun club in general is a utility, I think. And so I think, you know, I mean, you can just simply advocate that people do... Because most oppressed people do arm themselves, to be honest. Like, a lot of people who do live in really poor neighborhoods... You know, they they own guns and they, you know, defend themselves. And so I think just, you know, 
trying to get rid of the stigma that the left is against that and is against people doing that. And it's, it does a lot in kind of, you know, war for hegemony or whatever you want to call it. Lexi, did you want to talk about, um, so the redneck aspect of this, I think you had something you were going to bring yeah. up. Well, Sophie already sort of touched on it. Um, when she was talking about someone who is criticizing redneck revolt for insufficiently dismantling whiteness. Um, so there was a critique of redneck revolt by the critical race scholar Noel Ignatiev, uh, who, I mean, as you know, I, I, as far as like, you know, like Maoist intellectuals go, like, I actually have a lot of respect for this guy generally. Uh, he wrote the best-selling book, How the Irish Became White, which is liked by a lot of, like, ironically, some like uh, more <laughs> some of the more problematic parts of the Irish uh, pride movement, <clears throat> um, which is interesting in itself. Um, but anyway, um, he he also wrote about this concept of whiteness basically being a a ruling class conspiracy against the working class as as a way of keeping it divided. Uh, in some of his texts, he just could not bring himself to say that, you know, white workers could even have a short-term interest in racism because he feels like if you acknowledge anything like that, you're like undermining the, you know, the immortal science and the the com communist politics and this and that. Like, so I don't know, like there, I, I don't think he's like a hundred percent, like I, I, I have respect for the guy. So when I read this article, I was kind of nodding my head like, okay, interesting. But I thought it takes an unfair turn. <laughs> um, <laughs> like what I think was interesting is the comparison, of course, to um, uh, the, the comparison to the young patriots. Um, right. Which the commonality that I do see there is this attempt to rearticulate. I mean, working class um, – like the hegemonic form of working class American culture, which like you're saying, redneck revolt isn't full of a bunch of white guys. But, you know, when we say the hegemonic form of working class culture, you know, like there is something maybe like, you know, we are talking implicitly like right. there, there is something there like um, the sweaty white guy with a big hammer, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, most people think of redneck, good old boy, you know, whatever. Like, like people really don't see a difference there. But of course, the idea of something like the Young Patriots and, and for, for, you know, in, in different ways, of course, and Redneck Revolt is to tease those things apart, is to take the culture around you seriously and, you know, sort of like, uh, I almost think of it as being like uh, an anthropologist, you know, like, because even if you're there as a leftist, like, and I, I remember, you know, growing up in a, in a gender conservative place and feeling very out of place and having to be an anthropologist about where I was growing up, you know, <laughs> like feeling like an agent from the future or something like, why, why was I sent back, to, back to this time? Um, like, uh, I, I feel like there's a positive value in rearticulating, um, things that are culturally alive, um, in, in like an anti-racist way. So I, I kind of have respect for, Kind of a, like a, a respect for the young patriots, even though they famously, you know, flew the Confederate flag until they started listening to the Black Panthers, which are like, hey, 
guys, can you not fly the Confederate flag all the time? Um, now, the reason I bring any of that up is because Ignatiev thinks that the young patriots are a more explicit form of the problem that he has with the idea of doing a left-wing like redneck group is that this is implicitly dealing with a white identity and it's not dismantling it and that if you're if you live even implicitly in the concept world of of some kind of whitened identity that you're you're that you're you know complicit with it essentially um which i think is a super kind of bong rip abstract critique on the one hand you know like for a, a group that's like trying to like offer some very practical training um to people <laughs> like and on the other hand you know there i think there, like i think a lot of people would find this argument intellectually compelling and um but on the other hand i something about it that i find really dissatisfactory and maybe for some of the reasons that i i find the young patriots sympath sympathetic um, like, even though they're clearly problematic, like <laughs> they weren't flying the Confederate flag to offend black people. When they, when they realized that it really offended the Panthers, that's what convinced them. What they were doing was flying the Confederate flag to offend their employers, offend the rich white people that around which they live. They were essentially like the Appalachians, uh, like Appalachian, like immigrants in, the, in those cities were essentially like a racialized population, quote unquote, you might say. And the, the way that, um, the way that like specifically white American liberals look at, uh, poor white people is, um, is, is the issue at hand. I don't know. Yeah. What, what do you have to say to that? A big old rant there. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, I think there is a reason why some of Renegade Revolt's biggest critics on the left tend to be Maoists. And I think it's for the reasons that you just outlined. Um, and ultimately I would agree that in order, in order for socialism to be truly successful, you would need to completely dismantle the white identity. Um, because a white identity, it's, it's meaningless. Like it's defined in, in relation to uh, a black identity, right? And I also think that you can't dismantle a white identity until you dismantle capitalism. I think those two things go hand in hand and you can't necessarily separate them. Yeah. Uh, I almost think of it like, you know, asking like people to stop being men. You know what I mean? <laughs> like stop identifying as men. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of those things where this is a hegemonic identity and articulating yourself in those terms is, problematic however are you really gonna like stop people from doing that how are you gonna how are you gonna stop that in this world anyway you will no, you I, will I, never I, stop I, me from being a man you will <laughs> never stop me no matter how hard you try Sorry. Ash, it's, not it's, all men. it's gonna happen jake just <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna pink pill you it's gonna happen on i yeah i'm bringing uh the estradol pills right to your house come on no but um, i think yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, while until we can dismantle capitalism, there is going to be a white identity of some form, and there's going to be people who really identify with that. And I think to just simply ignore that and just throw any, like, rural, you know, white poor people to the right wing is a really bad idea. 
I mean, even for the purely utilitarian reason of just having less people pointing guns at the left and less people, you know, committing acts of bigotry and, and violence against marginalized groups, you know, even for that reason alone, I think it's practical to get on board with trying to counter recruit people. And I think, I mean, the one thing I think I disagree with, uh, um, you know, your little rant there, Lexi, is mm. the idea that like people on the left are, you know, outsiders looking in, you know, or like anthropologists looking in, uh, you know, in these like rural communities or whatever. Like a lot of the people I know who have branches in more rural areas are, they fully are a part of their communities. You know what I mean? Like, you know, um, that's really interesting to me. I'm, I'm, ju I'm just a really alienated person. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm the alienated, domesticated stuff that the left is made of. You know, like I can't imagine feeling at home in the place I actually grew up. Well, and it, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I would have to. I don't want to speak for other people, but I have a friend who's, you know, uh, non-binary and lives in a really rural, you know, area and. You know, but from what I see and from, you know, what little I've talked to them about this, like, it seems like they see themselves as part of that community, but they also see that tension, right? That tension that, that while sense. Their community, they also recognize that they're an outsider because of their gender identity. But that doesn't mean they don't have, they don't see value in the community in the area that they grew up in. You know what I mean? Um, so... It's it's a complex issue for sure, but I think, you know, people people can have it both ways. I think you know what I mean. Like you can see yourself yeah. as part of your community, but also recognize that like you're kind of othered a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is there is definitely a thing on the left. This pervasive like fuck this dumb hick town. I'm going places. You know. Oh yeah. Well, there's this thing on the right where they say that. <clears throat> in the left they basically demonize white people and that if you're a white person you have to hate yourself and being leftist and being anti-racist is actually about hating yourself for being white and basically you know and i can see how some people might you know react to some you know very you know shitty liberal identity politics basically yeah, and then hear these arguments, and then being, yeah, you know, what the fuck is you know, wrong with these people? Like, you know, like what's, and so there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of um, shitty propaganda. So I get a lot from the right, but you also have it from the left, and it, it does create a lot of, you know, this this kind of, you know, I I think ultimately white guilt really isn't that useful, in the end. Like obviously white people have oppressed or, you know, or an oppressor, you know, race and the whole social construct of whiteness is basically a conspiracy to maintain capitalism, if not class society. But at the same time, there is this, um, the idea that the right promotes that if, if you're white, you have to hate yourself. Um, if you're a leftist. Yeah. This reminds me so much of the debates in, in, um, Jewish, like, uh, politics you know what i mean like a jewish communities like and i guess because you know jews are white basically now <laughs> um but yeah like there's there i've known a lot of young anti-zionists who you know just 
<laughs> get kind of down on themselves about being Jews. And it's like, man, this is uh this is like a weird walking right wing f- trope. Like this doesn't make any sense. Like that's, this isn't the way to respond to this. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think I should have to feel bad because I'd be driving like this. Do, 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 do. Sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, damn. Yo, check this out. Black guys drive a car like this. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, but white guys, see, they drive a car like this. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We're so lame. <laughs> what were you going to say, Sophia? Um, yeah, so, uh, Redneck Revolt was kind of founded a lot on like what it didn't want to be. Um, and one of the main examples I like we like to use is um, SURGE or Standing Up Against Racial Justice, I believe that acronym stands for. Um, where it's basically like SURGE is for white people only, and it's just basically like them in a room talking about how horrible white people are. And that really doesn't do anything to dismantle capitalism or dismantle white supremacy or anything really, you know? And I think Donald hit it on the head when he said that white guilt doesn't really solve anything or do anything, you know? I think if that white identity can't be destroyed overnight, we do have to try to create a positive spin on it in order to have the ability to combat capital. Because I think the thing that really ties um, ties white supremacy into the material reality we have today is capital. And until we could do something about that, there's always going to be systematic racism. Um, I know it's really convoluted, but I hope that answers your question. I mean, yeah, like white guilt is one of those things that there's definitely like a point of diminishing returns. Like it's important that people be aware of like, you know, the structures of the system, but it sometimes does get actually get into a place of like self-flagellation and just like that it's just kind of like counterproductive to things. And so you definitely want to make it clear to like white people, like, you know, if you come to this leftist organization, like, yeah, you know, you'll be, you will be made aware of like, you know, structural stuff, but it's not like. No one's gonna like be on your ass because you know you like Applebee's and t- Taylor Swift or whatever like white people are into. So I, I don't know Taylor, Taylor Swift is pretty awful, but that's just me. Look what you made me do. <laughs> but no, I mean I think another talking point I like to um, use as far as this is concerned too, like the basic difference between being an ally versus being an accomplice. You know what I mean? Um. Like being an ally in my experience is a lot about looking good and being seen doing the right things. Whereas, and like, you know, uh, removing the autonomy from marginalized communities and doing for them what you think needs to be done. Whereas being an accomplice means you stand with, you know, marginalized communities, help in the way they want you to help. And, um, respect their autonomy you know what i mean so you know i think a lot of like liberal identity politics gets in this place where it's just it becomes about white people feeling good about themselves and i don't think that does anything to help anyone you know and 
it feels fake and it usually is fake, you know? Yeah. Like the whole ally thing, it's kind of like this framework where everyone has their own individual identity struggle and we can't all kind of, there's no such thing as one common struggle we can all unite in. Rather, there's just our own fractured kind of identity struggles and we can only be allies with someone because there's no way we can understand their unique oppression. And in the end, it just creates this really atomized, individualized form of uh, politics that is incapable of actually changing the world. Well, one thing that that article said that I do actually agree with, though, is the acknowledgement that within the working class, there are these hierarchies that exist. But I think the thing that article got wrong was um, this idea that, like, Redneck Revolt isn't aware of that. Um, I don't agree with that at all. Like, you know, one of the things... One of the things we that's a firm part of our analysis is this acknowledgement that um, white, like the white working class has something to gain from oppressing uh, other workers who are not white. And that to me is like ultimately what, you know, quote unquote white privilege is, is that even if you're working class, if you play, if you support that system of white supremacy, you will gain. But our practice is about explaining to people like, yes, you won't have these short-term gains if you're having solidarity with your working class uh, fellows who are not white, but in the long term, we can organize for a better world for the working class. Um, And I also want to point out too, I think one of the major criticisms from that article that Lexi mentioned was, um, you know, who is this community that we're uh, talking about, you know, and I think the author made the point that, you know, if you're white, generally speaking, your community is also going to be white. Or I think it's even went as far as saying, like, your community is going to be the same race as you. And That's just it's not true anymore, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, like, if do you work only with white people? Do you go to school only with white people? Are your neighbors only white? I think if you're working class, that cannot possibly be true you know what i mean um yeah like working class neighborhoods are more mixed and at the point of production you know you have you know workers of all different races and nationalities interacting with each other so i think that ignatiev is wrong on that and i think there's other critiques i i have of ignatiev because he does have this idea you know the white blind spot that white people need to renounce their white privilege, but it doesn't really explain what that means in practice. You know, does it basically mean that the white workers are going to, you know, be like, we renounce our whiteness, and then they're going to, it just, and then they're going to, and somehow that's going to make the black workers unite and all the other white workers follow them. I think Nashiev almost has an idealistic approach to how to deal with it politically. And I don't know. He, he Obviously, How the Irish Became White is a great book, but his own politics lately have been pretty... He's just kind of an anarcho-counselist, idealist, anti-union. Well, if, you know, if I were to go to work and be like, oh, I renounce my whiteness, like, no 
no black or brown person's gonna really take me seriously. I don't. I mean, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think through actions, you know what I mean, that I can, you know, show that, you know, as a white person, I'm a race traitor. You know what I mean? Like, I don't support white supremacy because I don't see it having my interests at heart. You know what I mean? Um, and it's the same thing, like, you know, as a trans person, if I saw, like, a cis person being like, oh, I'm renouncing my gender identity. I'm like, okay, so what? Like, that doesn't mean anything. Like, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I maybe that's unfair to say what Ignatiev wants people to do, but I'm just confused. Like, what in practice would it mean for white workers to renounce their white identity? Would I, it mean basically betraying, standing up against racism when the chance is there? You know, because that's obviously something that socialists should always do anyway. Like, yeah, I, I think you would actually broadly probably like what Ignatiev is getting at and that you, you know, he's a he's a Marxist, you know, do working oh, yeah, class I mean, organization. Ignatiev, like I like his stuff. I just think that I don't know. I've been questioning it lately. And especially his polemics against the weathermen and his defense of, you know, the role of uh, the working class and in the so-called like first world that, you know, like the weathermen wanted to dismiss the ability for people to be in solidarity uh, as more or less saying, taking the like hard Marcuse line that the American working class just been bought off or. Yeah. Um, they were total third worldists. Yeah. And, and yeah, Ignatiev did defend the, you know, the idea that we need to win over the working class in America. That is true. He and, just, he just kind of he he understood the problem of white supremacy, but he kind of offered an idealistic idea of how to fight it, and this idea of like white workers renouncing their whiteness as a rhetorical tool like that's not really going to get you very far with people, you know, and when it comes to issues of like racism and privilege and you know hierarchies within the class like much like any kind of like communist or socialist jargon, like that has to be like eased into, you know what I mean? Like if you just go to a gun show and be like, you need to be a race trader and you need to like support Marx or whatever, like anarchism, like they're just going to laugh at you or be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Whereas, you know, if you're like, Hey, like you have more in common with your coworker who's black or brown than you do with your boss or with Donald Trump, you know, that idea might resonate with people because ultimately it's true. You're just saying the same thing, but in a way that's more palpable. A lot, One of the critiques I've heard a lot from like left communists is like basically, you know, we're kind of like trots just telling the working class whatever they want to hear. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily see that. Like, I think if the core of what you're getting at is... If you're following principles and you're speaking about true conditions, it doesn't matter if you use different words. You're still saying the same thing, ultimately. You're just saying it in a way that isn't this, like, Fox News buzzword. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of the times, too, like, these left communists who make in this criticism, like, you know, they live in New York or they live somewhere in Europe and... They don't actually go out and try to talk to people about their politics and win people over their politics. So they have no idea the actual challenges that you will face if you just try to talk 
your coworker about communism and try to convince them, you know, of your politics because they don't give a shit about doing that. So they have no idea how hard it actually is. So it's easy for them to, to shit on redneck revolt for, you know, not going hard enough, you know. Or or they do know how hard it is and just kind of couldn't knack it. Oh, yeah, that's also possible. They tried and just made fools of themselves because they just couldn't figure out how to. Or maybe their politics was always shit from the start and, like, explaining yeah, exactly. it to people. Like, yeah, that's not They had, like, reasonable concerns. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else that we wanted to cover? Or Pretty comprehensive. Anything else that you wanted to say? Um, I guess I just kind of wanted to touch on one other common uh, criticism uh, about Renick Revolt being, like, a big tent organization um, and... You know, we allow libertarians or, um, you know, people who are registered with the Republican Party, gasp, um, to join. And see, I don't, I don't see what the big deal is about that. Like, it's just... <laughs> we don't care what your political ideology or what your, what, you know what I mean? We don't care about that. What we, ca- what we care about is, like, we have a set of principles. Do you agree with these principles? These principles are anti-capitalist, anti-nation state, anti-racist. And if you agree with those principles, then fine. And if that those principles are at conflict with whatever ideology you you defend with, like, you know, it's up to you to navigate that. You know what I mean? But if you're doing this with us, this is what we're working towards and this is what we're doing. And awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I like to joke around that it would be easier to do uh, entryism in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. (laughs) Make the Republican Party Republican again. (laughs) Make it Marxist again. Yeah, because Marx actually supported the Republican Party back in the day of the Civil War. And there were Marxists who were part of the Union Army and stuff. Well, Marxists helped start the the party. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, if if the late John Boehner is any indication, or the late career of John Boehner is any indication, like the leadership cannot control what the rest of that party does, so you'd probably have an easier time like ha- hacking into it than the Democrats. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of this. Sort of a John Brown caucus of the uh, Republican oh Party. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, that's not going to go over well. <laughs> it would be a really good situationist prank, though, at the least. Yeah, especially, especially again, like, I've t- this is an obsession of mine, but especially if you can get some of that Putin money. And that oh, would just completely yeah. drive the liberals insane. It's always about the Putin money, Jake. <laughs> no, uh, it's... Listen, yeah. all you need for the Putin money is to shit on America. And it's so easy to shit on America, so we should be able to tap into that, no problem. One of us needs to get an RT. If we don't get on RT <laughs> at some point within the next, I'd say, three years, then this podcast will have been a failure. Yeah. There needs to be a conspiracy theory that we're Russia bots. Oh, that would be good stuff. Yeah. Get out of the way. Putin's the new daddy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, you know, we start the John Brown caucus. We're pro gun, you know. We're for rapprochement with Russia, you know. Yeah. We're we're, uh, we're <laughs> we 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 hate we hate Boris Yeltsin, and we think that uh, Gorbachev <laughs> lost an empire. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, 
Oh my um, god. <laughs> or for a uni universal conscription into the labor army. <laughs> and and Space Force. <laughs> yeah. Space Force. Okay, uh, we should okay, we should probably wrap up. Uh, Sophia, thanks for coming on. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. You're welcome for having me. Thank you. Yay. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can like our Facebook page, share our shit, or leave us a good review on iTunes. Or, if you want to go the extra mile and give us some money, you can do that through PayPal. And just send it to swampsidechats at gmail.com. Or subscribe to our Patreon. Also, brief announcement. Uh, we got a Discord coming. People have been asking for it. It's coming. It's on the way. Uh, we just have to think of a bitchin' name that uh, will be worthy of uh, the high-quality patrons that are sure to frequent it. So... If you have any ideas, uh, send them in. But only if they're good ideas. Don't send me no bullshit. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>